Is the month of March the best month in the sports calendar? Coach is back, and we'll find out this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. It is me, the Iceman, and the coach is back with us this week after an absence of the last two weeks. And you know what they say, Coach, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Welcome back, buddy. It's good to see that face. Iceman, it is wonderful to be back here on Iceman and Coach. It has been since the Super Bowl uh, live show that we've done this together, but we've obviously stayed in touch throughout the last few weeks. And uh, it's been a busy couple weeks with me, like in just personal life and family stuff, but really happy to be back here and uh, to get the ball rolling with whatever lies ahead for us here on the heels of football season. It is basically the start of almost like our season. I actually didn't even think about the Super Bowl. That feels like ancient history at this point to me anyway. So I didn't think about the fact that it had been that long. And I guess last week we had some people come in, Cleve, who you're familiar with, and we talked NBA with our friend Matt. It was actually a lot of fun. You missed a really good conversation there. Hopefully one day we can get Matt on with the four of us or even the three of us because he is like a historian with basketball, the type of things that he can pull out of his head. He has been studying the game for a long time, so it was definitely a lot of fun, but it is nice to have you back and I guess almost like reset and recharge this show because we started during the football season and that's really where I think we are the most comfortable. So now we're forging a new path into some sports that we haven't really talked about. I'm really excited about it and maybe we're going to fumble through it, but isn't that kind of the deal? You go through some growing pains and you find what works. So hopefully the listeners and the viewers, if you're watching on YouTube, will stick with us throughout that awkwardness. Yeah, and I think it's an opportunity, right, to maybe open our eyes to some other sports or to get more involved in certain sports that we haven't paid much attention to in the past. And, you know, I'm looking forward to that, I know. And I know we'll talk baseball a little bit later. And I've always been a baseball fan, but I think because of this show, I may pay a little more attention uh, to what's happening in the world of baseball. Um, Obviously, as the NBA playoffs unfold over the next couple months, you know, I'm not a big NBA guy. So if we did talk NBA, I would definitely need a third person to do some of the heavy lifting. But it's something that I'm open to kind of paying more attention to as we move forward here. Plus, we have to find more fan bases to piss off because we've only alienated the Philadelphia Eagles and we need to find some other fresh blood and fresh fan bases for us to find, I guess, an avenue for them to hate us because they hate us because they ain't us, man. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it exactly. And and there's nothing better. Uh, there's few things in life I enjoy more than getting under people's skin when the opportunity presents itself, especially you know, just in the name of good fun. You do say that you wear your petty like a heavy coat. And while we are coming out of the winter and getting into the spring, March ge- March generally symbolizes this, the sport of college basketball. And I think most people start to pay a little bit of attention to college basketball around this time because the NCAA tournament is right around the corner. It's next week. And they have tournament brackets to fill out because there is money at stake. However, as far as this show is concerned, I think in terms of investment in college basketball, you certainly have much higher of an investment in your team, the Bradley Braves, over the course of your lifetime and this season in particular. And you've mentioned here or there on the show about going to some games and so forth. But I wanted to open the floor up because their season ended the other night and my condolences to their season. But I would say 
They had a great season, made it up to the conference championship game, and were one win away from the NCAA tournament. And as a mid-major, that's the goal. But you have very deep connections to Bradley University, specifically their basketball program. So I wanted to let you get a little personal with the listeners after two weeks off and kind of enlighten us about your connection and how you came about to love Bradley basketball. Yeah, I would be happy to do that because... I'm sure listeners are like, what What? What makes someone a fan of Bradley University? You know, this small private college in the middle of Illinois. And, uh, well, most of it is because I, I live in central Illinois. So Peoria is right here. You know, I basically grew up in the Peoria area, you know, my whole life. And my my dad grew up a, a big Bradley basketball fan, especially about his high school years. The way he became a fan was um, his high school band would go and fill in for the pet band over Christmas break when they were gone you know, when they were off at home on winter break. And that's where he fell in love with Bradley basketball. And then I came along and he named me Bradley because of Bradley basketball. And he took me to my first game when I was five years old. I still remember they played Chicago State at Carver Arena, which you see behind me. I'm pretty sure it was a victory. And it was the first uh, first year of a of a head coach's tenure there. It was a transitional period of the program. Um, that coach, Jim Molinari, who's, who's who I grew up with as the head coach. And in 96, you know, I got to experience them winning a conference, a regular season conference championship. Then they got an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament that year. They lost to a really good Stanford team. Then that Stanford team actually went on to lose to John Calipari's UMass team oh, I um, in the second in the second round, like Marcus Camby and those guys. But it, it's just been a huge thing. It's been like the biggest common ground that me and my dad have had um, throughout my lifetime. I mean, sports in general, but especially Bradley basketball. There, there have been many, many conversations, even disagreements or borderline arguments that have been had over Bradley basketball. So the last month has been a lot of fun because the last decade or so of Bradley basketball has been a little bumpy. Uh, they've Their coach now, Brian Wardle, when he came in, he basically had to rebuild the program from the depths of hell for the most part. And you know, the first year, I think they went, they won a handful of games. I can't remember the exact record, but it wasn't pretty. And those freshmen that he had on that team, by the time they were seniors, they won the conference tournament, went to the NCAA uh, as a 15 seed and nearly knocked off number two seed in Michigan State. And then they won the conference tournament again in 2020 and then it got canceled because of COVID. And then the last couple of years have been a little rough, have failed to meet expectations, came into this year with a lot of high expectations. It started off a little rocky. They were not very healthy, but they got things together once they got all their guys back. And the month of February was just one of the best rides, uh, emotional rides in sports I've ever been a part of. I consider myself a really rational sports fan until it comes to Bradley basketball. And I am definitely invested in this emotionally on an irrational level. Uh, but I, I think it's healthy to be that way about sports once in a while. And there's something that's like cleansing about it to the soul. I feel it's a really good distraction, too, from just the day to day grind of life sometimes. And. You know, they won, I think, 10 straight. They won the regular season conference championship at home against Drake, which is, you see, that's the celebration happening uh, behind me uh, from last Sunday. And then this most recent Sunday, they made it to the conference championship at the tournament. Rematch against Drake. Me and my dad got down to St. Louis to watch it. Did not go very well. Frankly, Drake just beat the tar out of them. But the better team won that day. And also a little tidbit about Bradley basketball, just to kind of reiterate how ingrained it is in like my family is uh, me and my wife, our son, we named him Carver after, you know, Carver Arena where Bradley plays. And that's, and the reason for me that is you might say, oh, you named your kid after a building. Sure. But like sports have been such a big part of my life. And Carver Arena is where I fell in love with being a sports fan, which opened the door to being a baseball fan, a football fan, a wrestling fan, 
a sports podcaster, right? I mean, it all started somewhere and it started in that building you see behind me. So um, it's a really special place. And to be able to kind of like pass that along is, is something I'm really excited about. So I can't say enough about that. It's it's just a really cool, neat thing. And uh, to transition back to the basketball side of it, a little fun fact as we move into March Madness, Drake, I believe, is going to be statistically the oldest team to ever participate in the NCAA tournament. I, I saw a stat that said their roster, their starting five is actually older than I think four NBA starting fives. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, they got a couple guys that are like 26 years old. Between, you know, maybe uh, medical red shirts, transferring and sitting out for a year before the whole portal thing, COVID stuff. I mean, that they got dudes that are just, their eligibility stacked up and yeah, they're, they're up there. Uh, and like, I think that uh, Bradley's coach after the game in the press conference, you know, he was sitting there with a couple guys, uh, one of who's a sophomore, a true sophomore. And he's like, when Connor Hickman was in seventh grade, Roman Penn, who's Drake's point guard, was a freshman at Drake. <laughs> you know, um, so I mean it, that team's got a lot of maturity. I tell you what, though, teams like that, mid-major teams that are veteran-led and experienced, those are the teams that make noise um, when it comes time for the NCAA tournament. So uh, keep your eyes on the Drake Bulldogs as uh, March Madness rolls around. And then the Braves—they're not done yet. Uh, they won the regular season championship, which got them an auto bid to the NIT, which isn't, it's not the NCAA, but we'll take it. And uh, so I think Sunday night we'll find out. They'll likely end up on the road, which is fine. But uh, I, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, too, in the NIT. So I'm looking forward to that. The National Invitational Tournament, which, as my father used to tell me, was something that meant something back in the day. Like if you made the NIT, it wasn't a consolation prize. It actually meant something to win it. And I guess they do kind of give it a little bit of bravado. Isn't the final at Madison Square Garden? So it used to be forever. And this year is the first year of them rotating the final four around. So the final four of the NIT this year is in Vegas. In Vegas. Everything is in Vegas now. Have you noticed that? I know, man. And then next year, I think it's in Indianapolis at Hinkle Fieldhouse at Butler. Oh, really? Wow. I was going to say everything except Derek Carr is in Vegas these days. But um, <laughs> exactly. They, they always want to have things in Vegas. And it's interesting. And we'll get back to the basketball thing in a minute. But the gambling aspect of sports has taken over so fervently that Vegas is going to become one day, and maybe this is a bold prediction on my part, but it feels like Vegas is going to become the epicenter for sports pretty soon. You know how in certain sports like college basketball, it's Indianapolis. It seems like the Final Four is always in Indianapolis every five years or so. And for I think a lot of sports, it's going to become Vegas. I think that these sports leagues maybe want it because before they used to deny that they liked sports betting and now they're all in bed with it. And so it really makes a lot of sense. No, I think so. There's a, there's a really good possibility that that could happen. And the thing is, is Vegas, they've got, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere, right? So they're not landlocked by anything. They have room to grow and grow and grow and grow and build and build and build. Obviously, there's maybe some infrastructure concerns when it comes to things like water and yes. stuff like that. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. But I think you're right. The sports world, as far as it as it regard in terms of Vegas, is only going to get bigger and bigger and better. Which, uh, hey, as long as they keep having direct flights from Peoria to Vegas, I'm okay with it. Do they actually have direct flights from Peoria to Vegas? Yeah, and they're usually pretty cheap, man. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I feel like from D.C., they probably have a bunch of flights. I've actually never been to Vegas. I don't know if you have. The closest thing I've ever had is New Orleans. And I'm not really a debauchery kind of guy, but I think that I have a bad outlook on Vegas because I've never been there. And so maybe that's what we need to do. We need to take the show on the road and we need to go and get to know the grit that is Las Vegas. 
I've been to Vegas. I went uh, shortly after my 21st birthday. I went with a couple of buddies for a few days. And I was surprised by the fact that it's not, now this has been, you know, that's 15 years ago, but it isn't, it's not the debauchery you expect. Yes, you can find it if you're looking for it. Absolutely. Yes, there are people on the street that are handing out playing cards of escorts. Beyond that, in the resorts and the hotels and things like that, there are actually a lot of family-friendly activities. Um, there, you know, these some of these resorts practically have zoos inside of them with animals and stuff, and aquariums, and uh, I mean, just all kinds of stuff that you could take kids to do that would be interesting. I'm not saying that it would be at the top of your list of a vacation to take a kid on, but if it was ever something where you went and took the family, whether it was a work thing or whatever, I mean, your kids would not be bored by any means. You know, it's not bad. Like I said, you can find there's bad parts every town. You can find uh, debauchery in a lot of places. And yes, it is available in Vegas, but it's not as prevalent or at the forefront as you might expect it to be. Are there bad parts of Peoria? Is there like the seedy downtown of Peoria? Uh, downtowns, sadly, the downtown of Peoria has kind of been dying um, over the years, which makes me sad, you know, because I hear my parents tell stories about when they were kids, there were all these old department stores and they had you know Christmas window displays and all this stuff. And there's none of that, you know, now it all moved out to shopping malls out in the suburbs. And, you know, the downtown area has is slowly been dying. But if you get a little north or a little south of downtown, those two areas in particular are um, a little rough. And then because the way Peoria sits in a valley, because it's right on the Illinois River. So the north bluff, the south, like down on the river, north and south of downtown are rough areas. Once you get up on the bluff, up on the hill, um, it gets a little better. But I mean, yeah, everywhere has those types of places, though, where you wouldn't want to go walking by yourself or whatever. But, you know, I personally haven't had any bad experiences in downtown Peoria. But it's like one of those things, though. I mean, yeah, if you're down there walking by yourself at two o'clock in the morning, I mean, yeah, something sketchy could happen. But we're too <laughs> old for that shit. I'm yeah, not gonna yeah you're not going to find it. me down. You're not going to find me down there. You might find Ryan there at 2 a.m., but you're definitely not going to find me there at 2 a.m. Absolutely. 100 percent. That's why we love the guy. But to bring it back to Bradley, family connection in sports is, I think, not talked about enough. Unfortunately, today, I think toxic fandom has really taken over a lot of the narrative of sports and deservedly so. If you hear some of these stories about guys getting beat up at games, the way that kids are treated by fans, booing Santa Claus, things like that. But sports to me is so connected for a lot of people and a lot of men specifically. And you talked about how you had trouble relating to your dad or talking to him, but you could always talk about Bradley basketball. And that's the way it always was for me, at least with baseball growing up, that I could always talk to my dad about it. We could always play catch. We would always watch the games and New England sports. I'm deeply rooted in New England sports because I grew up there and because of a lot of memories that I have. And so I think it's cool to hear you talk about that family connection because it does matter that people are passed down generational fandom. And while fanatic is a real term and where fan comes from, and you talk about being irrational sometimes, that's what being a fanatic is all about. But at the end of the day, when it's connected to something that emotional, like your family, I think it's a really, really awesome thing. And I think it's an element of sports that I wish we heard more about. The human interest pieces that you talk about loving so much, hearing stories about families passing it down. And I can give a personal story. When the Red Sox broke that curse in 2004, 86 years had passed. And if you think about it for my family, my dad, his dad, his dad's dad, all the way down the line of Freitzes at that point who had lived in this country had never seen that before. And so when it happened, 
it wasn't just a moment in time for me that was great from a sports perspective. First person I'm calling is a family member and then another family member. And then you go back home. I went back home after that for Christmas break or Thanksgiving. And you look at the cemeteries and there's Red Sox balloons all over the place, flowers, because the second that happened, people had somebody that they remembered that didn't get to see it. And it it was just a very touching moment for me. And no matter how many championships they win from here on out, that one will be the most special because of that connection. So I wanted you to share that with our listeners because maybe, yes, nationally, people don't care about Bradley basketball. That doesn't mean they don't have to care about it here because we are about every sports fan, not just the national sports fan. Yeah, and what's special about it is Peoria, I mean, I don't know, Peoria is a town of 120,000 people or something. I don't know. I, that's probably off. But, you know, you, you have, a, like I said, a small private university and my dad's getting up there in age and he's not going to be around forever. And to know that, like, I got to experience so many great games with him in the mid 90s as a kid, uh, sellouts, you know, beating the likes of Michigan and Villanova um, and Peoria winning the regular season championship in 96 and going to the NCAA, all that stuff. And over the last decade, you know, I had become convinced that I would never see that again. I would never see Carver Arena full again. It just wasn't going to happen. Just the, the landscape of sports had changed. A lot of Bradley fans that grew up in the real heyday of this, like throughout the 80s when they were winning the NIT and going to the NCAA tournament, winning games, a lot of those fans had died off. And just, you know, the, the fan base had not recycled itself because how bad it the, the, the program had been for a while and I was truly convinced I would never see it again. And so just at this point in life, at this point in my dad's life to have the opportunity to go there and, you know, see nearly 11,000 people, every single seat full. It was like, it was like stepping into a time machine and going back to 1996. I mean, it, it's exactly what it felt like. And it, it was just like, man, like I, I, you know, I've been here before, you know, I, I never thought I'd see this again, but just to to have that experience, even if it was just for one more time, even if it's never like that again, was absolutely worth it. And the fact that you can find something like that in a fairly small town like Peoria, Illinois, I mean, that's what makes Bradley special. That's what makes college sports special is scattered all across this country are smaller towns that have major universities that will turn out in droves for college football, college basketball, in some places, the niche sports, baseball, hockey, wrestling. So uh, that's it's such it's so fun to be a part of those things. I know when you said, you know, your dad's getting up there in age and you and I are both aging. I mean, I just turned 40 a couple of weeks ago and my son just turned three years old. And as I get older, even though I feel really young, it's hard not to think about the past. And some of you just said struck me where you said, even if it's the last time, even if it doesn't happen again, when we lose people that we love, and unfortunately for me, I've lost my mom, so I know how that feels, you're always seeking that one next time. And that's the one thing you can't get when somebody leaves this earth is that next time. You're always yearning for it. And so even if it is the last time, you had that one time, right? Like you can go back and say, it was great that we got to experience that, and maybe it won't happen again. But when he's gone, I'll always have that to go back to. And I think that it strikes me because, yeah, we don't get that many opportunities for that kind of connection as we get older. And so for you to be able to have that with your dad, 
I didn't actually quite understand, if I'm being honest, why you were so emotionally invested in a game that wasn't going to get you to the tournament, but I get it now. You get to be at the arena where so many of these memories pop up, and it's special. Whether they win or lose, it's still special. And so for you to get to see that and be a part of that crowd behind you, I'm sure you're a little speck somewhere right in there. I'm looking for the coach, looking for that AFC North grit back there, punching somebody, a little rust belt action. I don't see you back there, though. Well, that's why I after the game, you know, we were kind of mulling around a little bit and uh, I used the bathroom and I popped out and I found my dad and he was kind of, he'd walked into the concourse, into the arena and um, I saw him bringing the ladders out. Like, I'm like, dude, let's go down there. You want to go down there? He's like, oh, I'm like, come on, man. Like, uh, this may never happen again. Like, who knows? Like, let's go down there and just, let's just immerse ourselves in it. And so we did. And it was awesome uh, just to, to be a part of it. And what was really neat is we got down the floor and I start looking around and it's like, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. It was guys from that 96 team I was talking about. It was guys from the Sweet 16 team back in 2006. And they're just, they're there too. Like, it's just like, it's like a family reunion almost just to be down there with uh, all those people. I mean, it, just, I, it was just awesome. I can't really put it in the words. And I understand that it's it, it means something to me because of my emotional connection to it and the family connection that it has. I think everybody can relate in some way because everybody has that thing in their life that they feel the same way about. Well, I think this week and next week, you're going to have a lot of those narratives out there that can relate to what you're talking about because this is the time. All the cliches are out there. March Madness teams, schools, they're punching tickets, Cinderella's, all that great stuff, all those wonderful terms that we hear this time of year. And a lot of schools are going to get to the NCAA tournament for the first time. And as you eloquently said, maybe it won't happen again. But when you get in, you're in. It doesn't matter how you get in. So we're in championship week now. A lot of those smaller conferences are sending their bids now to the NCAA tournament. They are wrapping up well before a lot of the big boys take the court. Bradley obviously was a part of it. My wife's alma mater, Winthrop, got absolutely thrashed by Radford. So their season, their abysmal season is over with. She doesn't have to worry about it. Virginia Tech just started their run to an eventual loss in the next round in the ACC tournament. So inevitably, none of our schools will be represented there, but there will be a lot. There's a lot of hope in the NCAA tournament, but in order for us to get there, to get the, quote, 68 best teams in the country, we have to go through conference championships. And I want to ask you a fundamental question, and I think it will hit home. Do these conference championships that they have, which obviously are done to make money, let's let's make no mistake about it. They're done for extra basketball, extra ad revenue, all that good stuff. But to me, sometimes they devalue the regular season. The regular season for college basketball is a slog. There are a lot of games, a lot of travel that they have to do. And if you think about these larger conferences playing each team twice, it's a lot. And so when you get to the conference tournament, my wife asked me the other day, why do they play the regular season if they're just going to have a tournament to decide who goes? And I said, well, it seeds the tournament. She's like, it feels like everything that we did up until this point didn't mean anything. And for a team like Bradley, who outright won the conference fair and square, don't get to participate in the tournament because of this additional tournament that feels unnecessary to me. I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in, in the sense of Bradley, you know, and 2019, 2020, they had, you know, they finished in the middle of the pack and won the tournament and got to go, you know, it was just, you know, they got hot for three days in March and and here you go, punch your ticket to the tournament. But I think it's more meaningful though, in probably some of these mid-majors where you would not get into the tournament otherwise, unless you did win your conference tournament, as opposed to the big boys, like you said, the only purpose it really serves there is seating, right? Hashing out 
where different people will be seated because maybe you're getting that second or third matchup between a couple teams to sort of sort things out. But when it does come to the smaller schools, I, I think that it helps because if that's the only way you can get in is by winning the tournament, then well, let's play a tournament and, and get somebody there. And I think when it comes to, it, it does stink for a Bradley because up until that game this most this past Sunday, I mean, they were one of the hottest teams in the country. I mean, I, I would have, I mean, outside of maybe the top 10 teams in the country or so, not saying that they could play with even the top 20, but the way they were playing, you know, I would have felt, I wouldn't have been scared to put them on the floor with anybody at that point in time, um, just because the way they were playing ball and the way they defend. But like you said, if, if they can't get it done in those three days in March at the conference tournament, they're not going to get that shot. Um, now, they could have took care of business in the non-conference a little better than they did. But there was, you know, what we can go on about that all day. And, and it is tough. I mean, they don't have the excuse of saying we didn't have any good, good non-conference games because they did. They played Arkansas. They played Auburn. They played Liberty, which Jimmy Liberty has been OK. They might get in the tournament. Normally, teams don't want to play mid-majors. They have nothing to gain from it. Uh, if you're if you're one of the big boys, you don't want to play a mid-major, especially at their place, because they're usually not good enough for it to be considered a quality loss. And if you win, no one gives a shit. <laughs> so as far as the conference tournaments go, I do think that they matter as far as seeding goes. That is a money grab. But I, I do think they're definitely valuable for the smaller leagues. No, I hear what you're saying on that. I guess when I think about schools that are so unequivocally in the tournament, having to play these extra games and they end up costing seeding sometimes. And I, I mean, I guess I get it. But let's take Gonzaga, for example, who you have called the mid-major on this show. So we're going to double down on this. And they play in a mid-major conference. There are two schools in that conference that matter, Gonzaga and St. Mary's, who have both carved out quite a level of success for themselves, given the limited resources I would assume that they have for things like recruiting and so forth, and maybe not anymore, but once upon a time, does it really affect our outlook on Gonzaga if they lose in this tournament? And I know that maybe to the selection committee it does, but it feels kind of ludicrous. Like if Gonzaga is one of the best teams in the country and they have been in the top five all year, which is not the case this year, but you bear with me, and they lose in this conference tournament, does it really not make them one of the top four seeds? Like it just feels very arbitrary for schools that are already in the tournament and are unequivocally good. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that it, it, if anything, it just serves as a as a vessel for for hope for the teams that aren't a shoe in. It gives those other, other teams an opportunity, some hope that, hey, like no matter how crappy our season's been, if we can put it together for a few days here, we have a chance. Outside of that, though, like I said, yeah, I agree. I don't know. I mean, I, it wouldn't change how I felt about it, Gonzaga, if they lost um, and didn't win their conference tournament. They're going to be in the tournament either way. They're not going to play a game for another week. They'll have it figured out. And and at the NCAA tournament level, let's just be honest, it just to a team like a Gonzaga, it just means more at that point, right? I mean, it's probably hard for them to get up for the, the WAC or WCC or whatever the hell the league is, you know, and, and you can't blame them for that either. No, you can't. And But I, I do understand that for the committee, specifically the NCAA tournament committee, it gives them half the teams on a platter. So you basically have all the conference champions on a platter and you're only picking now 32 teams. But I'm sure there's some way in which they could do this that makes the regular season feel a little bit more valuable. And I guess, yes, they say that, well, we're looking at your entire resume. But let's be honest, it's recency bias. Like how many people are remembering when you played that great team in December, when everybody was focused on Christmas? Like, does anybody really remember that? Is the committee going back and saying, oh yeah, I watched the tape on that game in December and boy, oh boy, did they look good. But you know, they looked really crappy last week. Like some teams back into the tournament 
and then they end up making the final four. Yeah, I think sometimes it depends on who you are, right, and what league you're from. Because sometimes it's, yeah, it's recency bias. How hot have you been? Other times when it comes to poking holes in someone's resume, they'll go, yeah, they'll go back to early December and, oh, you lost to this team, you lost to that team. I, I think they have set themselves up in a way to to be able to make whatever argument they want for against almost any team. And what really stings, it, let's say, like, so in the whack, if some team other than St. Mary's or Gonzaga were to sneak through and win that tournament, that sucks because, like, St. Mary's and Gonzaga are still going to make the tournament. And that steals a bid from another, like, maybe a higher quality at large somewhere else that's not going to make it now because of that. Yeah, there have been teams with losing records making the tournament, which to me devalues the tournament in general. Now, as far as the tournament is concerned, I'm going to say this, and I've heard this from, of all people, Mike Greenberg, but I think that it is actually very, very true. The NCAA tournament isn't the best way to crown a champion, but damn it, it's the most fun way to crown a champion. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It's the same reason we we talk about football playoff expansion. It's more fun. It's exciting. And we're all going to tune in two weeks from now not to watch, you know, Michigan and Ohio. Michigan wouldn't play Ohio State in the first round, but you get what I mean. We're not tuning in to watch those games. We're tuning in to watch, you know, was it St. Peter's, right? Beat whoever or, you know, one of these mid-majors from nowhere. Uh, Steph Curry's Davidson going on the run they did. Stuff like that, man. Butler going to the Final Four. Loyola going to the Final Four. Butler going to the championship game two years in a row. Yes. I mean, that's that's what... Mo, I, I want to say that's what most fans are there for. Maybe not. I mean, I get obviously if you are a fan of of a team in the tournament, that's that's what you're watching for. But I think for casual fans like myself, man, I want to see chaos. I want to see the underdog win and uh, upset city. Everybody starting next week, next Thursday, is going to be looking at those five twelve matchups because everybody wants to pick those upsets. I will say this: the first day of the NCAA tournament is probably the sports day that I look forward to most, and it's funny because I don't pay attention to college basketball almost the entirety of the season. But that first Thursday, the excitement around these teams that I know absolutely nothing about, and it's not even related or tied to me doing a bracket challenge or anything like that. I just love the tournament because it's game after game after game. What other sporting event gives us that in such a great way? Two days, all the games are stacked. You have them all on at the same time, all the channels. It's just right there. It has become, to me, a premium sports event. And if they made it pay-per-view, I would pay for that experience. It is great. It's one of the, it's like, this is like my favorite time of the year coming up um, of the sports calendar because we've got March Madness. The Masters is coming up, um, which I enjoy. And the uh, NCAA, the national NCAA National Wrestling Tournament's here in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and that's one that if you're a wrestling fan, I mean, it's just nonstop wrestling for three days. Just boom, like you said, uh, with, with the basketball games, it's the same way. And uh, I, I just love it. It's just like content overload and it's just in, in, the, in its best form. You can't beat it. I totally agree. And we'll have to get into that a little bit more next week because they're going to have the selection show on Sunday, I believe. I think it's always right around St. Patrick's Day. Maybe it's another two weeks from here, but I thought it was next Thursday. So we'll have to be on the lookout for that. And I think it'll be fun to kind of look at the teams that are there. And you and I can talk like we know what we're talking about and try to predict who's going to win this tournament. Who knows? Maybe we, the Iceman and Coach Sports Show, will start a bracket challenge that our listeners can participate in. And if you win, you will get absolutely nothing other than our adoration on an episode of the show. 
Absolutely, man. And uh, like you said, talking about it, like we know we're talking about, if not, we'll just fake it till we make it and it'll be okay. That's what we've been doing here for months. Hey, every mid-major has great guard play and a great head coach, a young head coach on the rise. And if you go with that analysis, like Stu Gatz on Levitard and Friends, you'll be good. You can do any single game analysis and just be good to go. But I want to switch from NCAA basketball because that will start really in earnest next week. It's back to the NFL, but not what our usual topics would be. So the NFL Combine is happening now in Indianapolis, not too far from where you are sitting at Carver Arena in the middle of the floor. And the NFL Combine to me is ridiculous. It is ridiculous that it's on television. It's ridiculous that you can bet on the NFL Combine now. And I really, as a fan, do not need to give a shit about how big Will Levis's hands are or anything like that. And I think it's great because all over Twitter this weekend was how many records were being broken at the Combine. And a lot of them by players who maybe aren't going to have any impact in the NFL at all. But it's about coaching to me. And since you are a former coach, I want to ask you, as somebody on this show who has said, you know when your team doesn't have it. All of these coaches and scouts that go to the NFL Combine, are they really learning anything by watching these guys basically do a decathlon? It's tough to say because I've never been in that position, but where, especially where the margin between a a four five forty and a four six forty is relevant, right? Because where I'm used to, where I come from, it's not relevant. I gotta believe. I I hope that it has some sort of relevance when it comes to coaching and then making a determination who they want to draft. I like you said, I don't understand from a fan's perspective perspective why they put this on tv right it's like the underwear olympics you know they're the, i i don't know or why it's even relevant most, most coaches get the information they need from watching film that will tell them almost everything they need to know i get if you want to have an interview with the guy one-on-one and get a feel for his personality that's important uh, but how many times he can rep out 225 shit like that how big his hands are like you said who cares i don't care how big his hands are Right? Can he block? Yes or no? Can he tackle? Yes or no? Does he play sound assignment football? Yes or no? I mean, it, it, you can get that stuff from film. But the way these things are staged up is they are—they're not really giving you what it would be like on the field. So if you're—if you want to figure out if a guy can throw a button hook or an out route, you're really going to find that out on pro day or the combine. You're going to find that out when he has a bunch of defensive ends coming at him, and can he throw that under pressure? Those are the types of things you can't figure out. The example of it to me this week was Bryce Young. Everybody was all over, ooh, he's 5'10 and a half. And I'm thinking, can you not tell that by looking at him on the television screen compared to all the other players that he's playing around? He's easily the smallest guy on the field. And her coach is really learning something about him with that. And they're saying, well, he's undersized. Well, no shit, he's undersized. But what does that mean for him as an NFL prospect? You already knew he was short. You already knew he was small framed coming in. And yet somehow he's still going to get picked in the first round because he's a quarterback. And to me, finding out how tall he was, hey, if he was six foot, would it really change anything? Yeah, if the first time you found out how tall Bryce Young really was, was at the combine, you should be fired. (laughs) Thank you. My goodness. Thank you. That's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And I don't know, I'm assuming that Ohio, excuse me, Alabama listed him as like six six foot or six one or something in their program. People, but they know that people do that. They've always done that. That's not a new thing. That they're always going to list them heavier than they are and taller than they are. Why? I don't know. We used to do the same thing with our high school roster. You know, it just—it's stupid. But like you said, they're going to show up and see how tall he is, and and it's not even relevant because it's not like you're watching him throw behind an offensive line. He's not under a pass rush 
at all. It's not going to tell you anything you need to know. I just feel like we have gotten to this point with football. And, and do not get me wrong, listeners. I love football. We love the game of football here on this show. We talk about it all the time. And the news landscape, they're trying to make football a 365-day-a-year sport with all the news that is circulating. And I feel like the combine is just another one of those things. And while the draft is not quite on this level because I think that the first day of the draft is at least fun to watch. The combine is useless to me as a viewer. It's useless to me as a fan. And it's for the people that are really in deep in making these decisions. And I think that the added part of it now where you can bet the sports book has the NFL combine on there to bet things like 40 time. What are we doing? Do you know how how long have they had the combine? Do you know when it started? I don't know. It's been long enough that it at least has caught traction. But and it's been in Indianapolis for a long time. I just don't know right. when they started it. I mean, obviously, obviously, these NFL coaches have to have some way to differentiate this guys, but these guys. But as you said, there is tape on these guys. And the combine is not really like you're only there if you're invited. Not every player gets a chance to showcase. And Stetson Bennett, two-time national champion. We know what he was in college, but I think you and I could look at Stetson Bennett and be like, he's a career backup. No shade at Stetson Bennett, but when you're looking at his skill set, the way that he is built and what the NFL generally demands at that position he's probably not going to be able to make it with the guys, especially at his age. He's, what, 27 or 28? And he runs a 4-7-40, which is a great time for a quarterback. Does that mean he's going to be a better prospect? I thought it was great. People in the comments on Facebook, he's going to make a great seventh-round pick. Then why the fuck is he at the Combine in the first place? Right. I saw an uh, image online that said Stetson Bennett ran the fastest 40 time by a 45-year-old at the NFL Combine or something. Right. But Anthony Richardson. Probably going to be the number one pick in the draft. He seems to be blowing everybody away with his skill set. And they talked about these records that he broke at the Combine. And they showed all the other players that were around him with these records. Not a one of them guys on the list has even been to a Super Bowl, let alone has made a real impact on a team. And this is something I'm getting very fired up about all of a sudden because it's it's wasting space in my brain. Like, I can't even believe we're talking about it right now. Well, I feel like it was probably relevant once upon a time, like in the early 90s, when the only way that you were ever going to see somebody is if they played for played for a college power that was on national TV or if their coach sent you a VHS in the mail or you took yourself to wherever they were to physically see them in person. It maybe was possible that the first time you were exposed to somebody from Wyoming, like Josh Allen or something like that, would be at the Combine. It's certainly possible that some of these guys that kind of maybe would be under the radar back then before the, the internet would maybe be under the radar unless they went to something like the Combine to show off their, their skill set. Now, though, with the, the internet and TV like it is, there you know who everyone is. You know who everyone is. Probably you know who too many people are. At this point, it's impossible that there's somebody out there that you don't have the ability to watch film on almost instantly if you really wanted to. I just had a very wonderful thought. I would love to see you just walking around the combine using as much coach speak as possible. Looking good, Steve. Great little route there. You know, just walking around, talking to people, like patting them on the ass. You're not even supposed to be there. You're just sort of like, yep, everybody looks good around here. And then nobody will care because the combine doesn't matter. I would love to do that. You think next year I should go see if I can get in? I yeah. I'll get like I'll get some of those polyester coaching shorts from like the seventies and the striped <laughs> tube socks. 
like the guys on Days to Confuse, the football coaches? No, I'm serious. Like, I can just imagine you walking around being that person who's trying to act like they're cool and in the group, but nobody knows who you are. But they also don't want to awkwardly point out that you're not supposed to be there. So you're just sort of allowed to stay. And like, it's kind of like when Eli went to Penn State tryouts. Yeah. And I'm going to carry a small tape measure around in my pocket and just go up to go up to the players and just measure random body parts on them and like right scratch it down on my notepad. And then the next week on the show, you come back with your list. Well, I saw that so-and-so from Grambling State has six inch fingers. I don't know what that means, but we found that out. So there you go. He's probably going to get drafted. Never. He has a 27 inch forearm in case anyone was wondering. (laughs) (laughs) That would actually be good. What? Let me ask you this. What is the most mundane body part that you could find out somebody that wouldn't tell you anything about what it's going to be for their NFL prospect future? Like ankle girth? Ankle girth? Yeah, that'd probably be a good one. I was going to say... I like forearm. Forearm is good, I have to admit. Forearm is a good one. Forearm's a good one. Um, Ankle girth is great. Um, Maybe kneecap diameter. Oh, that's good too, yeah. (laughs) yeah, But you got to use patella, patella diameter, because you got to sound like you kind of know what you're talking about. Guy's got elite patella diameter. I like where you're headed. I think we need to do something with this next year. Maybe have our own combine and it's the combine of misfit body parts. And all we do is talk about the things that absolutely do not matter for the NFL. But speaking of things that are irrelevant, baseball. So you have been very (laughs) hot. (laughs) You have been very hot about, sorry, Alex, but you have been very hot about something that's been happening in baseball. So To bring the listeners forward a little bit, the last time we talked about baseball, your cousin was on here and was part of the cacophony of gas bags because of his absolutely terrible prediction that the Philadelphia Phillies were going to be shown what's up by the St. Louis Cardinals who were uh, basically swept out of the playoffs unceremoniously. And during that episode, I pressed him as a young person who's a baseball fan, which is really an anomaly about baseball has trouble evolving because I think there's so many factors about the way that the game is and their inability and really unwillingness to become progressive. And so this year they're trying a few things. And this is part of the collective bargaining agreement, or at least some of them have been where they're banning the shift. They're trying different things in the COVID shortened season. In extra innings, there was, what, one out and somebody was already on second base, something like that, trying to speed the game along because baseball is the only sport that doesn't have a clock. It's the only major sport in our country that doesn't have a clock. They are trying to change that by adding this pitch clock, which they're now using in spring training. It's been used in the minor leagues, and there have been some hiccups. But before we get into that, I want to give you the runway to have a rant because apparently you are very, very heated about this very innocent pitch clock. I'm absolutely heated about it because all I see on the Internet are people saying things like, if you like the pitch clock, then you don't understand baseball. I think that is absolute bullshit. Are they saying, why are you trying to shorten? Why are you trying to get less baseball? Listen, morons, like it's 27 outs still. It's still 27 outs. It's not less baseball. You know what it is? It's less batting glove and cup adjusting. That's what it is. And I don't understand why we have to let a guy step out of the box, unfreaking Velcro his batting gloves 10 times, step back in, dig in, get set, grab his dick, and get his bat in the proper spot. I have no idea why this, why this must be allowed. I don't understand. And yes, people right now are going to try to find ways to manipulate the pitch clock. I saw Matt Scherzer the other day, did the, or Max Scherzer, or Matt, <laughs> did an excellent job. I mean, because 
the second I believe that that clock starts, the moment you're set, you can deliver as long as the batter's in the box or something. And so, and the batter's allowed one basically timeout. So he got on the on the rubber immediately, and then he just waited, 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 made the batter take his timeout. Guy steps out of the box, he gets right back on the rubber, and like the second the guy's in the box, he throws the pitch. But hey, you know what? Find a way to use the rules to your advantage. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I'm sure batters will find a way to use it to their advantage as well. And the other thing is this. The game cannot survive on diehard fans alone. And it just can't at this point. And I'm sorry, but unless you can bring in the casual fan, the game's going to die. It can't stay the same. If it stays stays the same, it is going to die a slow and painful death, which might be appropriate considering the way they want to play the game, apparently. I don't know why there's such a resistance to any sort of evolution in this game. I do not. You know, I talk to people because now, right, they they officially have the DH in both leagues now, right? I feel like this is something I should know. Yes, but, they do. Okay. And I talked to people who said, oh, the second it is, I'm never watching baseball again. They still watch baseball, right? I mean, that's so dumb. It's a better brand of baseball. Like, I get it's fun once in a while to see the pitcher get up there and take a couple of hacks. But for the most part, nobody wants to watch a guy that never practices batting get in there and try to hit. I mean, who can be hurt, too? Sure, yeah. And you're paying those guys way too much to get hurt legging out a grounder to third. No, no. And I and I guarantee you, if there's a pitcher who's a great hitter like Shoei Otani, they'll find a way to put the bat in his hands. You know, if they feel like he can help them at the plate, they'll find a way to get him there. But it's just not going to be the case 99% of the time. It's a better brand of baseball, like I said. They have to do something to speed the game up. I get that it's kind of leisure. You know, baseball is very leisurely and all that stuff. It's still going to be. It's still going to take nearly three hours to play a baseball game. But there's no reason why we have to stand around for one or two minutes in between pitches and stuff like that. I mean, that's absurd. There's so many things to unpack here. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying because I have been a fervent advocate that baseball needs to update for the times because the consumer that it's trying to reach is a younger consumer. And in order to reach a younger consumer, you need to cater to very, very, very short attention spans. And you and I know about this because as an hour-long program, we're actually stretching the limits of what we can expect people to tune into on a weekly basis. My assumption is that most people tune into our show in pieces because that's what they have time for. And I don't think it's a matter of games taking three hours, but the NFL, no matter what length or what part of the season that they are in, postseason, regular season or not, the games all usually take generally the same amount of time. When baseball has meaningful games, these games sometimes stretch out to four four and a half hours. That's a lot for a sport that doesn't have action. And football has, what, 15 minutes of action in three hours? And yet somehow we're still watching it because the action is fast-paced and the game has evolved. One thing baseball doesn't do very well at all is when the game itself, the play on the field, updates and evolves, they as a league are not meeting that same challenge. And I think you're seeing that here because hitters are getting paid to hit home runs. And as a result, there's less balls in play every single year. Alex can debate me on that if he wants to, but the stats are in my favor. And they're striking out a lot more. In order to strike out, you need at least three pitches. And nowadays, hitters are working the count. So we're talking nine, ten pitch at bats. They're trying to get the pitcher out of there. That takes time. You can't take that part of it out. So you have to do something in the margins to do it. And the pitch clock, to your point, is basically making it so that the batter can only grab his dick one time, right? But 
the point you made <laughs> yes. about the point the point you made about Max Scherzer though that was that actually was an issue because collectively bargained is the safety part of it. The batter and the hitter have to make eye contact as sort of a mutual, we're both ready for this. And I could see there being some safety issues there. But the part of baseball that I think is the biggest issue is these unwritten rules. And until we get out of that, and we actually think progressively, it won't make baseball any less pastimey than it already is. But if they don't do something, it will be a literal pastime and that we will not even have it anymore. It will be an extinct sport because the sports like the NBA and even the NHL, which is regional, are going to pass it because they are evolving along with the play on the field. I agree. And I do think there are some interesting counterpoints that could be made. Like you mentioned, in a football game, you know, there's only maybe 15 minutes of actual action that takes place. And that's absolutely true. But I guess we just accept it because we love the game so much, maybe. But then look at a sport like soccer that is being that is basically live. The clock is running the whole time. It's basically constant action, but it's boring as shit to somebody that's not really into soccer. And, you know, it's the most popular sport in the world. <laughs> so By I just think the, the one thing I think is what they're doing doesn't take away from what makes baseball baseball. I mean, it doesn't take away from the actual action of the game at all, in my opinion. Uh, in football, there's a play clock. They can't stand there at the line of scrimmage for five minutes deciding what play they want to run or what's best versus what coverage. They've got a play clock. They've got to have the ball snapped on time or take a timeout. And when they're out of timeouts, they don't have a choice but to snap the ball, period. It's just the nature of the sport. It forces there to be breaks in between plays because the way the sport's played. But to go back to the universal DH, and you mentioned that, which is something that we haven't even talked about, more players like Shohei Hotani can actually exist in the game with this new rule. And what does baseball need? They need more Shohei Otanis. That guy is doing things that haven't been done since Babe Ruth, who is the unanimous best player to ever play. Like he is the poster for Major League Baseball in terms of Hall of Famers. And don't you want that out of your game? Don't you want those guys to come in and change the sport generationally? Look at what we're getting in the NFL. Right now, the crop of quarterbacks, we are going away from Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, and we're going to guys like Patrick Mahomes. Those guys are electric. They're changing the sport in front of us, and that's why people are gravitating toward it. Shohei Otani could do that. Baseball sucks at marketing its players. So why don't you let these players do more? Let them be more dual, you know, dual use. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had more guys like that? I know the novelty would wear off, but man, it's just so cool to think about the sport evolving to the point where Every team has a Shohei Otani, not just the league has one. No, absolutely. And I think about in regards to the pitch clock and, and what you're saying, maybe, you know, having the pitch clock may create a better opportunity for some pitchers. There may be some pitchers out there that gain an advantage from this. There may be guys that end up having a good, a good long career because of the pitch clock that wouldn't have otherwise somehow. And that might be a little strange to think, but just the fact of giving the hitter less time to think or process about what pitch is coming. I'm curious to see how it how it changes offensive baseball because you've got to get your signs in faster, I'm assuming, especially with runners on base, communicating what you want to try to do pitch to pitch. It could create some interesting situations. It could create some opportunities for other players to, I think the ones that embrace it the most, instead of bitching about it, have a higher chance of being successful. And like you said, it gives a player an opportunity to, you know, sort of evolve and grow and change the game. Baseball needs to do it. I mean, I do love watching baseball, but it used to never be a slog. And now it is. And 
What sucks is it takes away all the things about baseball that are so nuanced. And maybe nuance isn't what people want anymore. But if you have watched baseball for as long as I have, you know how many things are happening just in between every single pitch. And you and I put some of that onus on analytics, and there is something to be said about analytics, but we've talked about that with all sports, that it needs to be a combination. And analytics have gotten to the point for some clubs and organizations where that's basically a computer running that team, and that's not what you want. You need to have a little bit more of that human touch, but there's so many things happening. All the signs, when they are talking about pitches, the pitches are determined based off of watching that film. And we don't know that because that's not something you can see. In a football broadcast, you're talking about looking at Andy Reid with his giant Waffle House menu. And you know all these things are happening on the sideline, the calls that they're making. We get mic'd up for sound with the NFL films, people. And we don't get that with Major League Baseball. We don't get any of that. And so all those nuances are lost on the audience. And so if you're not going to show those things and you're not going to be a little bit, take a little bit more of a deep dive into your sport, you need something to make it more interesting. And I just feel like the pitch clock, it's going to have some growing pains. But you go through those growing pains now in March so that you don't have them in October and some stupid shit that costs something, a World Series or maybe in a playoff game or something like that. And I think that it's just part of what we have to accept as sports fans. If we love this sport, it needs to evolve. If you're not willing to get on board with that, you might as well start planning for the funeral now because it is inevitable that these other sports are going to engulf baseball. Yeah, I I think so too. And I, you know, kind of, you mentioned miking up. It brought up a great idea. I think that it's a money-making idea for Major League Baseball or even other sports. Mic up the umpires and make it available on a a pay-per-view channel. For people to listen to now, I'm sure there would be. I'm sure there's probably CBA reasons why they could never do that. But to hell with that! Violates contract. Mic up the umpires. I want to hear the arguments. I want to hear every word. Hell, do it in every sport. Mic up the hockey referees and the NFL referees and the umpires in baseball, the referees in the NBA. Mic them all up. Make people pay a little extra to watch it. I'm here for it. You always have these like half cocked ideas, like you're out here thinking that we're going to monetize in this way. Let me ask you, though, if you were to name the least interesting set of referees or officials in the major sports in this country, which ones do you think would be the least interesting, at least in terms of being mic'd up? The least interesting in terms of being mic'd up? I think NBA. You think so? Yeah. Because there's a lot of jarring that happens in the NBA games. Like, I feel like those officials don't take anything because they know they have the power of the technical foul at their disposal. Hockey referees, a lot of them are Canadian. They're so nice. Yeah, but have you ever watched any hockey mic'd up videos and the trash talk and stuff that goes on between those guys? That's a good point. It's it's unique. I mean, and it's not even necessarily bad. Some of it's just flat out funny. You know, like there's one guy that must have been on another team or maybe whatever. The guy on the other team was renting a place from him somewhere. Oh, that's great. And he's like, and he's sitting there. He's like, hey, man, when are you going to pay rent or some shit like or whatever? Like during a face off, he's like asking him a question or he's like, if you do this, I'll evict you or whatever. Like. It's just goofy stuff like that I think is funny. And then uh, obviously I think some of the stuff you would hear in baseball and in the NFL would be entertaining. I just miss the day where managers and umpires hated each other. Like I want to bring back Lou Pinella kicking dirt on home plate. Stuff like that. We need more of that. We don't see a whole bunch of that. We're too nice in sports now. We always have to be nice to everybody and everything. There's no more rivalries anymore. Bring in the microphones. I want to hear these umpires talk shit about hitters. I want to hear them say things like, I know this guy's going to swing at the outside pitch, so I'm going to call these pitches on the outside. That's why I don't want robo-umps 100%, because we need a little bit of that vindictive son-of-a-bitch umpire out there 
calling a wide strike zone. Yeah, I, I would love it. I mean, the reason is that society's too soft, right? Society is not, society can't handle the things that they would hear. That's that's the issue with it. And even, I think that's why you've seen some of it tamped down as far as the intensity is because there's so much blowback that comes from some of these outbursts and stuff that happens. I'm with you on the robot umpires. I'm not a fan of it. I think you need to keep human umpires, especially for balls and strikes and things like that. Just hold them more accountable for being shitty. And I think that's what you need to do. If, if they suck, you need to like make it known. And I'm sure they do to some degree, but I mean, really find a way, whether it's through fines or suspensions or whatever, keep the, keep the human being there, but stick it to them when they're shitty. I mean, to be fair, we go through assessments in our jobs where we are assessed as to whether we're doing well or whether we're not doing well. And we've talked about that with the NFL where there's been a lot of calls that have been questionable and we wonder, is there some type of a quality check? Are they being held accountable? Are, is somebody going over these games and being like, you know, this is a place you could definitely improve on? Maybe they are, but I think you're right. I think robo-umps add an element to the game that don't need to be a physical part of the game, but can definitely become a way to make it so that the umpires are being better and more accountable at their job. Now, there's a lot of union things that happen in all of that because the umpires have their own union and everything. But if it were me, and this was something that would make me better at my job, wouldn't I want to get better at my job? But maybe some of these umpires, because of that lack of accountability, they don't have any incentive to get better because they feel like what they're doing has worked because nobody has told them different. Well, and part of it too, I think, and I'm sure you can find it somewhere that it's available, but I think it should be like readily available. Talked about on the broadcast, like put it up on the Jumbotron at the game. We know what the t what every team's ranked. Jesus. We know what every team's offense is ranked, every team's defense is ranked. We know where every player stands. Like I'm literally umpire that put a number next to their name. You know, like you've got these four guys today. This guy is the number four best umpire and all the umpires. This guy is number 12. And then you've got Angel Hernandez, who's the worst, right? At, you know, number 75 or something like that. Like just ridicule them publicly. You are one petty son of a bitch. Oh, let's go to OTW. All right, everybody, Iceman's stat of the week, as always, starting off our of the week segment. Coach is back, so we'll have both of those. So, Coach, I have three stats for you to represent the three weeks that you have been gone, and all of them are baseball-related. Are you ready? Could not be more ready than I am right now. Okay, so you are familiar with Nolan Ryan, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Okay, Nolan Ryan debuted in the major leagues in 1966. He pitched against guys such as Ernie Banks, Roger Maris, and Willie Hayes. Quite the trio there. DJ LeMahieu played 125 games last season for the Yankees in his age 33 season. Both of those guys, Nolan Ryan and DJ LeMahieu, were teammates of Jamie Moyer. That's definitely interesting. Right? Jamie Moyer pitched in the league for like 50 fucking years, throwing 75 miles an hour. Unbelievable that Nolan Ryan could pitch against those guys who are considered in the pantheon of the greats. And also, <laughs> Jamie Moyer was teammates with DJ LeMahieu, who is like, who cares? <laughs> Speaking of Nolan Ryan, do you remember he got into a fight with Robin Ventura? I sure do. It's a doozy. One of the greatest moments in Major League history. Well, in 1987, Robin Ventura set an NCAA record for hitting safely in 58 consecutive games. 
Six years later, Nolan Ryan set a major league record by hitting him in the head 58 consecutive times. <laughs> That's incredible. Isn't that great? I had no idea. That's amazing. I totally agree. Okay, so this one comes down to money. In the offseason, there was a lot of spending by one team, and that was the San Diego Padres. They spent $860 million this offseason on their team. The combined spending for the Pirates, Nationals, Diamondbacks, Orioles, Rays, A's, Rockies, Tigers, Brewers, Royals, Marlins, and Reds was $449 million. That's insane, man. I'm sure that I'm sure the Yankees have accomplished that before at some point or something similar. Oh, the Padres have been spending at an unprecedented rate. And have nothing to show for it. So far. And they're trying to be the Dodgers. And I don't know if they're going to get there. A lot, as they said in Major League, a lot of high-priced talent that I forgot because they're just high-priced. So I guess we will figure out what happens this season with a very, very large payroll and what is a win-now move for sure. But I was just, I love the Robin Ventura fight. And I'm not even sure how accurate that is. I just fucking hope that it's 58. That would be incredible, man. I hope so, too. That fight is just one of the, it's one of the best. It might be the best pitcher-batter fights in, in Major League history. The best. My friends, it is time, the return of Coach's Pick of the Week. So the last time he picked was on the Super Bowl. He picked the Eagles over the Chiefs, which meant that he ended his season an 8-9-2 and two record. However, man, we are starting over. The season starts over. The picketh of the week is cleared. You are now 0-0-0. Zero, zero, and zero. So, Coach... Please, for the first time in this new cycle, bless us with your picketh of the week. Ah, yes. Hear ye, hear ye, peasants, degenerate gamblers alike. The coach himself has been on a little bit of a college basketball heater the last couple weeks. And I am here to share one golden nugget with you that will take you into the weekend with a little extra change in your pocket, and maybe if you listen to the coach. And that is a rematch of a game that just occurred the other day. Wake Forest against Syracuse in the ACC tournament. Syracuse won the last game, but I am going to take the Demon Deacons over the Orange in the first round of the ACC tournament straight up. The Wake Forest Demon Deacons, possibly the smallest school in all of Division One. I. I think there's like 3,000 people that go there over Jim Beheim, who needs to retire yesterday and the Syracuse Orangemen in the ACC tournament. Welcome back, Coach. So let it be written. So let it be done. And just like that, we have reached the end of the episode. We got into a lot of different stuff today, man. I thought it was really good, and we spread our wings. Both of us got a little heated about a couple of the topics, and I'm sure the listeners will have some opinions on that. But do you have any parting thoughts before we get out of here? Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, to Selection Sunday this Sunday. I, I did misspeak earlier saying we were maybe looking at two weeks out before it starts. But no, uh, Selection Sunday is this Sunday. The tournament will tip off next Thursday with the actual formal first round, but I think the first four might be before that. But I'm really looking forward to it. Like I said earlier, my favorite time of the year with everything going on in the world of sports and obviously super pumped to be back here behind the microphone doing this show. 
it's nice. It's been a few weeks. So, and, and to get in here and to get a little riled up about a few things is just what I needed to perk me up a little bit, get me ready to finish out the rest of this, uh, this week here. No, man, it's just great to be back. It was great to have you back, man. And it was great to have all the listeners back. We thank you for being patient with us as we have tried to juggle family responsibilities, work responsibilities, and content responsibilities. Sometimes it can be a lot. Thankfully, though, the coach and I have a pretty decent network of friends that we can call upon to come in and give some shitty sports takes or educate you on some things. And I hope that over the course of time, you will learn to embrace them as you have embraced us. But before we get you out of here, please support the Pub Time Podcast. You can find them wherever you find your podcast. Coach will be back with Ryan and hopefully Ryan will remember to hit record when you guys do that as he forgot with me a couple of weeks ago. Please support the Matty Ice Media Network by visiting mattyicemedia.com and supporting all the other podcasts that we have including this show, Political Football, and my sneaker podcast, Fire Footwear. You can find all of those wherever you find your podcasts. If you want to follow us on Twitter, at Iceman and Coach is the handle to do that. If you want to follow me, you certainly can, at Matty Ice Fritz is the handle to do that. If you are watching on YouTube, which you should be, please remember to hit like and subscribe, all that good stuff. We love the interaction, so keep it coming. And lastly, if you are listening on Apple and Spotify, please remember to hit that follow button give us a few stars. We'd love to hear some feedback on this show and create a community around this show. Coach, it was awesome to have you back. And as always, buddy, this is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.